Grounding and bonding. Grounding systems. What is grounding? Generally speaking, the difference between grounding and bonding is grounding is a direct connection to the earth to aid in removing damaging transient overvoltages due to lightning. The purpose of bonding is to ensure the electrical continuity of the fault circuit path to provide the capacity and ability to conduct safely any fault current likely to be imposed and to aid in the operation of the overcurrent protection device. Properly bonding all metal parts within an electrical system helps ensure a low impedance fault current path. The issue of grounding and bonding confuses many inspectors. Due to its complexity, in this section we will try to break it down to its fundamentals and look at the basic requirements and common failures that can lead to unsafe conditions around the home. Grounding. To go back to the beginning, the last stop on the utilities distribution chain before the supply goes to the home is the transformer. This steps the high voltage primary distribution down to the neighborhood to the 240-120 volt feeds to the homes. This transformer has a winding known as a phase coil that is center tapped to provide voltage stabilization and a return path for the higher voltage system to aid in clearing primary side faults. As discussed earlier, on a typical 240-120 volt service drop, we will have two ungrounded conductors and a single grounded conductor. This means that we have to establish our own grounding electrode system at the dwelling. It is vital in removing dangerous voltages imposed on the system via lightning strikes and over voltage surges from higher voltages on power lines. If ground rod, pipe, or plate electrodes are used, they must have a rating of 25 ohms or less. Otherwise, an additional electrode must be added per section 250.56 of the NEC. There are several methods of connecting the grounding system to the ground, with a driven rod being the most common in most areas. Most residential construction requires two separate grounding electrodes in any combination of the following, which need to be at least six feet apart. Driven rods, or rod type grounding electrode rods, metal water pipes, well casings, Oofer grounds, Uffer grounds, UFER grounds, ground plates, steel framing, and ground rings. Historically, the grounding system had just one connection to the ground, and this was nearly always made on the water supply pipe. However, two connections are now required by most jurisdictions to ensure a low impedance ground, one with little resistance. Because most utility companies now install plastic potable water supply lines, a water pipe cannot be used as a grounding means, so one of the other electrodes listed must be used. It is also important to note that all electrodes that are present in the dwelling must be bonded together to form a single and complete grounding electrode system. Typically, the two required grounding electrodes need to be at least six feet apart. If one is the water pipe ground and the supplemental is a ground rod, another ground rod may need to be added in order to meet the requirements of section 250.56 of the NEC. Gas piping should not be used as a grounding electrode for safety reasons, but in most areas, gas lines are required to be bonded to the grounding system if they are likely to become energized. Driven rods, 5 8 inch diameter. Rods made of stainless steel and copper or zinc-coated steel shall be at least 5 eighths of an inch in diameter. 
Grounding electrodes of pipe and conduit must be at least three-fourths of an inch in diameter, or the metric designator 21. There are special listed rods, and listed rods may not be less than one-half an inch in diameter. If pipe or conduit is used as a grounding electrode, it must also be no less than eight feet in length and no smaller than the trade size or three-fourths of an inch. If pipe or conduit is used as a grounding electrode, it must also be no less than eight feet in length and no smaller than trade size or three-fourths of an inch. If a micrometer or similar device is not available, the home inspector shouldn't guess the rod's diameter. If visible, you may be able to confirm the diameter by looking at the listing marks, which may indicate that the rod complies with the diameter requirements of the National Electric Code, or NEC. The listing agencies CSA, ETL, MET, and UL will mark rods that are greater than a half an inch in diameter and that have the correct minimum amount of coating. Eight feet in length in the soil. Rod and pipe electrodes must be at least eight feet in length to be considered a grounding electrode. All rods should be driven eight feet into the earth. The rod and pipe electrodes must be installed at least eight feet of length in direct contact with the soil in the ground. They must be driven into the ground at least eight feet. They could be driven at an angle, but the angle should not be more than 45 degrees off the vertical. Or the rod could be buried in a trench that is at least 30 inches deep. Sometimes, in very rocky earth, the rods cannot be driven perpendicular to the ground, so they may be driven at an angle of less than 45 degrees. If they cannot be driven at all due to unfavorable soil conditions, they can be installed in a trench no less than 30 inches deep, but no part of any grounding electrode can be closer than six feet to any other. The upper end of the electrode should be flush with the ground or just below the ground surface so that the end and attachment are protected from damage. If you find a rod sticking up out of the ground, that's a defect. It should be at or just below the soil surface. Corrosion. Pipe or conduit made of steel shall have an outer surface that is galvanized or otherwise metal coated to resist corrosion. If the material is iron or steel, the electrode must have its outer surface galvanized or metal coated for corrosion protection. Attachment. The ground wire, or the grounding electrode conductor, needs to be fastened, referred to as the attachment, with the correct approved clamp, and the attachment needs to be rated for direct burial, if located below ground. It is common to see these acorn clamps installed improperly with the conductor clamped under the screw rather than to the solid part of the clamp, which has the biggest contact area. Again, please refer to the photos within the course for examples. Metal water pipes. As discussed previously, these were the most common connections at one time, with all homes being connected with metal piping. Where the metal pipe is used as a grounding electrode, the conductor should be connected with clamps rated for water tubing and needs to be connected within the first five feet of piping as it enters the structure. Since the water meter is a removable part of this potential circuit, a jumper cable needs to connect the pipework on either side of the meter to ensure continuity at all times. Jumper at the water meter. A jumper or bonding conductor is a conductor used to ensure that there is electrical conductivity between metal parts that are required to be electrically connected. For example, a jumper may be installed over the water meter because the continuity of the grounding path or bonding connection of the interior pipes should not rely on the water meter. 
The jumper is a large gauge conductor that jumps over the water meter and is securely attached to the metal water pipe on each side. Well casings. As wells are bored to great depth and lined with metal sleeves, they make good grounding electrodes as long as they are far enough away from other grounds and are properly connected. Oofer grounds. More properly referred to as a concrete encased electrode, the Oofer ground is named after Herbert George Oofer, a retired underwriters laboratory vice president who developed the system during World War II to help ground concrete armament bunkers. With so many homes and commercial buildings now built on concrete steel reinforced slabs, this grounding system has become very common. The requirements for Ufer grounds are that they have either 20 feet of number four rebar or four AWG copper wire embedded in at least two inches of solid concrete within the footer that is in contact with the earth. This system must also have an external means of connecting other grounded systems to it, such as telephone wires. Ground plates. In some cases, ground plates are used as the grounding system, but this is uncommon in residential construction. Ground plates made of ferrous metal, such as iron or steel, shall have a thickness of no less than a quarter of an inch. Plates made from non-ferrous metal should have a thickness of no less than 0.06 inches. They should be at least two square feet in overall size and be buried to a depth of 30 inches. Steel framing. Steel framed buildings typically use the frame as one of the grounding electrodes as long as the structure is substantial enough and has at least 10 feet of connection to the earth. Most commonly, the framing is connected to an oofer ground. Ground rings. Again, although it's very rare in residential construction, a ground ring may be installed where a minimum two AWG conductor is buried to a depth of at least 30 inches right around the structure. Grounding electrode conductors, or GECs. The GEC is the conductor that connects to the grounding electrode and its size is dictated by the size and therefore the amperage of the service conductors. Please refer to the course for a detailed table of the GEC sizings. Remember, the GEC should be connected only to the neutral at the service panel, the panel containing the service disconnect, and nowhere else. Bonding. Bonding of components. The purpose of bonding is to ensure the electrical continuity of the fault current path, provide the capacity and ability to conduct safely any fault current likely to be imposed, and to aid in the operation of the overcurrent protection device. As discussed in the section on panel enclosures, they need to be bonded to the grounding system. But there is also a very long list of other components that need to be connected to ground since they have the potential to become energized to electrical faults. These components include interior water piping, water heaters, around water meters, gas lines, electrical enclosures, electrical raceways, electric outlets or junction boxes, CSST gas piping, manufacturer's compliance, and telephone and cable TV systems. Some styles of panel bond are straps, some are made up of conductors, and in some cases the bond is one of the screws holding the bus onto the enclosure. In more modern panels, the bonding connector is required to be through an approved green screw, so it is more apparent to both the electrician and the code enforcement officer. 
However, in many panels, there may be a bonding strap or bonding bar. Panels and enclosures. Please refer to the How to Perform Residential Electrical Inspections course for a main panel and sub-panel diagram that is a detailed visual description of the following. Note, do not use the interior metal water piping beyond the first five feet from where it enters the building. Remote distribution panels. Although this topic is covered in other areas, because the emphasis is on safety, it's important to review. The National Electrical Code does not recognize the term sub-panels from a code standpoint. There are two types of panels. Service panels. A service panel is a distribution or load center that contains the main disconnecting means. This is the only panel where the neutral and grounds should be joined or bonded together. Distribution panels. Distribution panels or load side panels are downstream from the panel containing the main service disconnects. In these panels, the neutral and grounds should be separate and the neutral bus should be isolated from the panel enclosure. The only exception to this is in existing detached structures where no metallic path exists between the structures. In this exception, a connection between the grounded conductor and the metal case via a bonding jumper is permitted. According to the 2008 NEC, this is not allowed in new construction, so in all cases a four-wire feed to the detached structure is required in order to isolate the grounded conductors from the equipment grounding conductors. There are two methods of providing ground continuity back to the service panel. One, four conductor feeders with two hot or ungrounded conductors, one neutral or grounded conductor, and one grounding conductor. Two, three conductor feeders with two hot or ungrounded conductors, one neutral or grounded conductor, and equipment grounding through conduit or tubing electrically linking the two panels, allowed by section 250.118 of the NEC. Inspecting service panels. 1. Are the neutral and ground connected or bonded? 2. Is the panel enclosure connected or bonded to ground? And 3. Does each neutral conductor terminate at a separate lug on its bus? Inspecting distribution panels. 1. How is the service grounded back to the service panel? 2. Are the neutrals and grounds separated? Three. Is the neutral bus isolated from the panel enclosure? Four, is the panel enclosure connected or bonded to the grounding bus? And five, does each neutral conductor terminate at a separate lug on its bus? An important note, every structure is required to have a grounding electrode system. If they are present in the structure, they must all be bonded together. If a detached structure has a remote distribution panel located at the structure, then it requires a grounding electrode system of its own. The equipment grounding conductor in a four-wire feeder does not take the place of the required grounding electrodes. It is also important to understand that if the detached structure is being fed by a single branch circuit and it contains an equipment grounding conductor, which is used for grounding the non-current carrying metal parts of equipment, then no grounding electrode system is required. Further evaluation. The inspector should pay very close attention to the grounding and bonding of all electrical circuits. 
Sometimes it is very hard to figure out which components are electrically bonded to others. Do not disturb conductors on the panel. The inspector is limited to a visual inspection only. Probing around inside energized panels may cause loose conductors to become detached or result in electric shock. When in doubt, defer to a licensed electrical contractor.